Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Listeners, and welcome to the pastor's office. I pray that you have had a great week. I pray that you have enjoyed some of this weather. Now, 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 I, I know that the weather has been some of. Yeah, it's been a little bit of some of this and some of that and, and then some of this. But, but the tail end of the week, we've been able to really enjoy uh, some nice, sunny, spring-like weather. Now, I'm saying all of that, and then next week, we'll, we'll have snow again. But that's all right. I, here's one thing that I've learned, and one thing that I've truly come to understand. As long as I can breathe it, feel it, and smell it, as long as I'm still in God's creation, I'm okay. Uh, so I pray that you had a wonderful week. For those of you that are engaged in the season of Lent, uh, that 40 days leading up to the cross of Calvary, I, I pray that your time uh, of intimacy with God uh, has really blessed your life and is blessing your life. And remember, some of those things that we have left behind and are leaving behind during Lent, let them stay gone. Don't bring them back after the 40 days are over. Uh, 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 you've learned how to exist without them this long. Uh, let's continue to take the time that we would have spent doing other things uh, and spend that time with God. Truly, I'm glad to have you here this week. And, and I, I got to share with you that if you've not been watching the news, I'm surprised because the ratings for news uh, viewership, readership, listenership uh, have gone through the roof as a result of what's going on in Ukraine. I've got to tell you that it has been heart-wrenching to see some of the videos, some of the photographs uh, of the people who are suffering uh, as a result of this, this war that was unprovoked, this war that, let's be honest, one man decided to wage against an entire country uh, because he has delusions of grandeur, uh, this war that has now caused over 3 million people to leave their homeland and go to places, in some cases, in most cases, they've never been before not knowing what their future holds. Uh, this is a very troubling time for us. And then as you continue to listen to all of the reports, 
You know, should the United States get more involved? Should NATO get more involved? If we get more involved, will that cause World War III? And we're dealing with nuclear powers. Will Russia partner up with China? There's just so much going on uh, to create anxiety and to create fear. Uh, what I wanted to do today was really get an understanding of what's going on, get the whys, and and maybe get 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 some understanding of how we find the ramp off of this highway and back to peace. And to do that, I, I'm welcoming into the pastor's office for the very first time uh, one of the senior editors at the Washington Post. Uh, he's been the Berlin bureau chief. He's been a local columnist. He's he's won several Pulitzers uh, for his reporting, and we are excited to have him in the pastor's office. I want to welcome in Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher, come on into the pastor's office and have a seat. Thank you, Pastor. It's a, it's an honor to be here. Well, listen. First of all, I want to thank you for giving us some of your time. I know your schedule must be incredibly busy right now, but it's important to me that our Philly's favorite listeners really have an understanding of what is going on in Europe. So why don't we start at the very beginning? Uh, based on your reporting and your knowledge of the situation, why is Russia in Ukraine? Well, that's really the core question, and it's a good one. It goes back a ways um, through the history uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin traces back uh, to the Middle Ages. Uh, Russia has thought of Ukraine, the territory of Ukraine, as part of Mother Russia, part of their uh, sphere of influence, part of uh, the Russian Empire, the Soviet Empire in more recent times. And... Um, you know, there's some truth to that. Uh, Ukraine doesn't have a long history as an independent country, but there have been periods in history when it has been independent. And certainly when the Soviet Union fell apart in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, Ukraine, like many of the other nations that were kind of captive to the Soviet Union, decided they wanted to go their own way. They wanted to be independent. They wanted to be a democracy. They wanted to align themselves with Western nations and the economic and uh, political and spiritual success of the West. And so that's what they did. And so for 30 years, Ukraine has been independent, and that has nagged at Vladimir Putin the entire time. He came up in a time when the Soviets were one of the main, uh, one of the two superpowers in the world. Now he's presiding over a country that's a third-rate economy that just happens to have a lot of nuclear weapons. So we take him very seriously because of those nuclear weapons, but really he presides over a much shrunken country uh, that has very little influence around the world. So he wants to regain some of that influence. He wants to push back against Western Europe and the United States. And the way he wants to do that is to put together the core of the old Soviet Union. And Ukraine is a vital part of that. Yeah, I mean, we saw what he did uh, in Crimea. Uh, we've seen the saber rattling. Uh, you know, one of the things I guess that is you know, giving me pause is that it seems as if the last three presidents, and we're not being partisan here, we're just being, you know, we're just looking at the situation. Does it seem like they pacified him? Does it does it seem as if they, they kind of ignored the man that we really knew that he was? Uh, and now in a moment where he thinks our country is weak, he's now taking advantage of that? 
There's some truth to that. Uh, I think what we saw in the period after World War II was that American presidents, both Republicans and Democrats, were united in the idea that the United States, the security of the United States, was based on our alliance with Western Europe against Russia, against the Soviet Union. And more recently, we've had two, two presidents in a row, Donald Trump and Barack Obama, uh, who said, you know, we really need to focus ourselves at home and in Asia, our competition with China. That's our main rival in the world. And so with that in mind, uh, there was less attention paid to Russia, less attention paid to Vladimir Putin, who was busy trying to rebuild Russia, rebuild uh, uh, something of an empire, some influence, at least in Europe. Uh, so did we have our eye off the ball? Certainly there are people in both parties who say that that was a contributing factor here. Um, but it's also true that uh, Russia simply was not as important. It, uh, it was a smaller economy, it had less influence around the world, and China was indeed our largest rival. So we did turn our attention away. Absolutely. And and so I guess my question for you, Mark, though, is, I mean, you've watched this over the years. You've reported on Russia. Uh, you've reported on things going on over in Europe. Uh, one of the things I think we all thought is that when Putin did invade, if he did invade, uh, that Ukraine would fall rather quickly. Uh, we're not seeing that. Uh, what we're seeing is a massive resistance by the Ukrainian people. Uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about this this defense that's being put up by a less equipped country against Russia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Ukraine is a country of about 40 million people. Uh, it's a tiny fraction of the size of Russia. Uh, its military is much smaller. When the Soviet Union fell apart, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, so it has none. Uh, so it, it should be, as you say, outmatched by Russia. Uh, and certainly in terms of raw military firepower, Russia has the upper hand. But as we've seen in reality on the streets in Ukraine, and as we've seen in other cases around the world, a smaller but uh, dedicated group that is devoted to fighting to protect their freedom and their democracy uh, has uh, a real advantage over a big invading army from a larger place that doesn't really have an emotional stake in what happens here. Putin never really prepared his people or his military for why they were doing this, never really got them to invest in it. So we're seeing terrible morale among the Russian soldiers. Uh, some of them are abandoning their tanks. Some of them are uh, giving themselves up to the Ukrainians. Some of them are being easily picked off on the roads. And the Ukrainians are fighting on home turf. They know the territory. Uh, and as long as the West is helping them with military equipment, uh, weaponry, uh, they're able to conduct this essentially guerrilla street-to-street -street warfare against the Russians. In the long run, Russia should still win this. They still have overpowering uh, force. Uh, they still have endless numbers of people they can throw at this. But it's really uh, an inspiring sight to see the Ukrainians fighting back as they are. And you have to add here also the impact of social media and the Internet, which has allowed the Ukrainians to stay in contact with each other, uh, to push each other on, to organize their defenses, and organize uh, the acquisition of the equipment that they need, uh, as well as to bring their public opinion together, whereas Russia has uh, kind of uh, tried to keep its people back in another era 
era where they're being uh, force-fed propaganda, where they are being limited in their access to the Internet. They don't really have the full picture of what their country is doing to Ukraine. That gives the Ukraine uh, a real advantage here. You said a couple interesting things that I want to dissect there. First of all, you said Russia should win, and then you spoke about NATO. Let's deal with those individually. Russia potentially because of the size of their army and their military might, should be able to take over. I I agree with you on that. But does Russia win the occupation? Well, that is is a a very salient question because we've seen in recent decades in world history, whether it be in Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, that uh, you can uh, be ahead in the war and uh, really be losing the war, that you can be, uh, you can have overbearing force and yet find yourself stuck in a quagmire. And uh, this does have all the look about it of Vladimir Putin and the Russians uh, getting themselves stuck, even if they win on the ground, even if they take over the big cities, even if they depose the government of being stuck in a uh, an Iraq or Afghanistan kind of situation where it just drags on and for years and years because the Ukrainian people are not going to give up and the Ukrainian people are not going to suddenly become fans of the Russians. So they're going to continue their resistance, whether that be uh, in a guerrilla fashion and uh, almost in a terrorist fashion, or they may uh, you know continue to uh, regroup and, and mount counterattacks against the Russians uh, even after hostility end. So uh, Putin has bought himself a real mess, a real problem. He's lost his support throughout Europe and around much of the world, uh, and he's lost uh, a lot of support from his own people. Uh, and we're seeing desertions. We're seeing uh, Russians who are refusing to take part in this uh, episode. Uh, so it's um, it's a big problem. He's He's got to, at some point, be looking for a way to declare victory and move on, uh, but we're not at that point yet. You're listening to Philly's Favorite 100.7 and 99.5 HD3. We are talking to the senior editor for the Washington Post, uh, Mr. Mark Fisher. And Mark, again, we thank you for your time. Let, let, let's now dig into NATO. We know Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And for our listeners that uh, aren't familiar with NATO's purpose, NATO rose as a Bulwark, uh, I guess that's the word I want to use, or defense against uh, communism during the Cold War. Uh, If I'm wrong on any of that, Mark, please correct me. But it's an alliance of nations that uh, came together to make sure that communism did not spread. And now, with Ukraine having not been a member, of course, NATO does have this pledge that they will defend every inch of any NATO member's soil. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. One, I want to understand why Ukraine was never allowed into NATO, because they certainly have appealed uh, to NATO to allow them in. And then two, do we feel that at some point, if Putin is able to take over Ukraine, that he will eventually try to uh, move into NATO territory? Well, NATO is uh, an alliance between the United States and its Western European partners that was designed to keep the Soviet Union at 
uh, check, uh, and it succeeded in doing so uh, for decades. It was the alliance that kept the Soviet Union from expanding its empire from Eastern Europe uh, onward toward the West. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, NATO uh, NATO's purpose was not quite as clear. Uh, it was obviously still meant to be a bulwark, as you say, against Russia, uh, but the Soviet Union had lost all of its satellite nations, Poland, Hungary, Romania, and so on, uh, that had once been in the Soviet Empire, very much wanted to become part of the West as soon as they became independent and democratic, and NATO expanded to take in those countries and say, okay, you're part of our team now uh, as we continue to hold the guard against Russia. The problem is that those Eastern European countries had a history of, be, of having been independent countries. Uh, they're part of Europe. It sort of makes sense for them to be part of a European alliance. But then the next, as you look on a map going a little bit further east toward Russia, you then come to the countries that were literally part of the Soviet Union. Ukraine, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, and uh, Moldova, and so on. Now you're talking about a much trickier kind of thing. What is the NATO alliance? Is it just everyone ganging up against Russia? Does it make sense to take in these countries that are immediately neighbors of Russia, thereby knowing we're going to antagonize Putin, uh, knowing that we're possibly provoking him into uh, standing up for those countries in what he sees as his sphere of influence. So it's a a tough line, and it's one that NATO has not crossed. So none of those former Soviet republics have been admitted into NATO. Uh, There's some talk that the Ukrainians would like to be part of NATO. Uh, uh, But uh, so far, the West has seen fit not to cross that line because it would be too provocative. But of course, Putin believes we're being provocative anyway. He thinks that we are supporting uh, democratic forces against Russia in Ukraine and those other former Soviet countries. Uh, So we're we're in that confrontation whether we want to be or not. Uh, The problem is uh, we clearly want to prevent it from becoming a full-scale, full-blown military confrontational war. And uh, that's why you've heard President Biden and many Republicans say we're not going to get involved in a shooting war with Russia over Ukraine. So we're trying to find that line where we support the Ukrainians with weapons, with supplies, with humanitarian aid, uh, but not crossing over into direct combat, because that, as President Biden says, would be world. World War III. If Putin uses chemical weapons, and we're hearing a lot of saber rattling around chemical weapons, if Putin uses chemical weapons on the Ukrainian people, uh, is that crossing a red line in your opinion? Well, it's hard to know how our administration would uh, respond uh, when we were in a similar situation in Syria and President Obama said, Chemical weapons is the red line, and if the Soviets or the Syrians use, I'm sorry, the Russians or the Syrians use chemical weapons in Syria, that's the red line. We will then get uh, directly involved in that war. Well, chemical weapons were used, and we didn't get directly involved, uh, so it's not clear that we're really prepared to do that. We would have to do that if Putin used 
chemical or other weapons against a NATO country. But since Ukraine is not a NATO country, we are freer to make these decisions on the fly and to uh, protect ourselves against involvement in a war that we really don't want to be in. So I, I at this point, don't think we would necessarily see uh, that kind of involvement on the United States' part in the event that uh, Putin uses chemical weapons. He's used them before in other places. We have not responded in kind. We have not responded with forces uh, of our own. Uh, I don't think there's an appetite among Democrats or Republicans for doing that in this instance. President Biden called Putin a war criminal uh, earlier this week. I guess where I'm a little bit perplexed is, are there no generals? Are there no political leaders? Are there no men of conscience, women of conscience in Russia that that would seek to overthrow him? Uh, is, is that just not their culture? Well, whether it's their culture or not, and obviously uh, Russia has a long history of uh, being an autocratic state, uh, looking up to its leaders as uh, strong men, as President Trump used to say. He he uh, admired the fact that uh, they had strong men in Russia. Well, they do, and uh, the fact is that uh, there's not really a tradition of uh, of democratic change or of uh, people standing up to the top leaders. Uh, however, we are seeing quite a bit of uh, pushback from the public in Russia. Uh, we're seeing it in the form of dancers and musicians and other artists who are resigning from Russian uh, state arts organizations, uh, either leaving the country or quitting entirely. Uh, we're seeing it in terms of uh, small protests, a woman who went on national state television to protest against war and was uh, taken off the screen immediately. We're seeing street protests where people are being arrested by the dozens and sometimes hundreds uh, as they raise their voices against this war. So it's not the kind of mass protest that we would have in our tradition in this country, uh, but given the extreme strictures and uh, repressive nature of the Russian state and its uh, police force, uh, we are seeing a good deal of pushback there and some strong indications that a lot of Russians uh, understand this really is a war of aggression and don't want to be a part of it. I don't use this term lightly, but, but, but let, me, let me say it this way. Out of the ashes of this struggle, a true hero has emerged. Vladimir Zelensky has become a hero across the world. This guy was a comedian just a few years ago. Now he is the wartime president of Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about his rise to power and, and how the world is viewing him right now. Well, Zelensky's story is one that should be somewhat familiar to most Americans because we've lived through it in our country where we've seen in recent years uh, a tendency to look toward celebrities uh, for leadership, whether that be uh, celebrities like Donald Trump, who had no previous political experience before uh, running for and winning the presidency, uh, going back to Ronald Reagan, going back to uh, people like Jesse Ventura, the wrestler who became governor of, of Minnesota. Uh, or, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, who became governor of California, there's a tendency in this media age to look toward people who perhaps have played leaders in the movies or on television uh, as as actual leaders. Uh, it may seem 
comical at first, and yet uh, it is there is something about having the ability to communicate in this very splintered media environment that we live in. The ability to bring audiences together and make them believe in something is very much part of what a politician does, a successful leader does. So uh, this is not just an American phenomenon. We're seeing it in other countries as well, and Ukraine is one of them. Vladimir Zelensky was a comedian, an actor, um, someone who had a very successful TV show where he played someone who accidentally became president and became a pretty good one. And so uh, life imitated fiction, and uh, people elected him uh, to the presidency there. He was not a very popular leader until the war came along, and now he really has transformed his uh, image and has become, as you say, a much admired inspirational figure around the world for his bravery, staying in the country, staying in hiding places, making himself seen on television, on, on the internet, uh, again and again with strong statements, rallying the Ukrainian people, pushing back against Russia and Putin, and rallying the rest of the world to Ukraine's support. Uh, he's been very effective. Uh, he has said from the beginning that he is Russia's target number one, that he expects them to come after him, perhaps try to kill him, and yet he stays and, and pushes on. And so uh, there's a lot of admiration out there. How long he can keep it up is anyone's guess, um, but uh, he has certainly rallied a country uh, and its 40 million people into this resistance that has inspired the world. Last question, uh, and, and, and in many cases, the most important question. Uh, three million people, it's estimated thus far, uh, have left Ukraine to to go to other countries to seek a haven, safety, to be able to protect their families, their children. What does history tell us about the life of the refugee? Do they make it back to their country? Do they have to now settle in new places for the rest of their lives? Uh, based on history, what what's in store for them? Well, it kind of depends on what happens to Ukraine. If uh, if Russia continues this campaign of uh, just utter destruction, devastation of one city after another, almost a World War II Berlin-style complete devastation of cities uh, to the point that they are piles of rubble, it will be hard for those millions of Ukrainians to head home. Uh, they don't have a home to return to. That said, they have a tremendous loyalty and emotional bond with their homeland. They still have relatives there. The Ukrainians have insisted that men stay behind to fight, and so families are divided. Those families are going to want to reunite when things calm down. Uh, so I think a fair number of these refugees will come back. They are staying close by. They're uh, primarily in Poland and Hungary and other uh, countries right along the border. So they haven't gone far. They haven't been dispersed through the world quite yet. As long as that's the case, as long as these hostilities come to a conclusion sometime in the next weeks or a couple of months, then I could see a large number of those Ukrainians returning home. But you're absolutely right that the history of refugees tells us that many refugees do not return home. And so as they begin to disperse more widely to the Israel, to Canada, to the United States, to other countries in Western Europe, uh, these people are going to start to put down roots. Their kids will start in new schools, learn new languages, and they will uh, 
think twice about going back to the very hard life of rebuilding a country that has been uh, reduced to rubble over the course of the weeks of this war. So it really could go either way. I think uh, at this point, nearly all Ukrainians would say, we're going back, and they'd be absolutely adamant about it, and they truly mean it, and we should believe them. But if this drags on for months and the devastation gets worse and worse, uh, it may be difficult for them to do so. Mark Fisher, senior editor of the Washington Post, I want to thank you for stopping in the pastor's office this afternoon and giving us uh, an update on what's going on in Ukraine. We do hope that you'll come back again as the story continues to evolve and share more information with our listening base. We thank you so much, sir, for coming by today. Thank you, and uh, hope to be with you in happier times. Absolutely. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hey, Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. And we want to again thank the senior editor from the Washington Post, uh, Mr. Mark Fisher, uh, for joining us here today to give us an update on what is going on uh, in Ukraine. But now let's come back to Philadelphia. Uh, on March the 3rd, by a vote of 15 to 1, uh, legislation was passed to establish the Philadelphia Public Financial Authority. Now, you say, Pastor Mason, what is the Philadelphia Public Financial Authority? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about this afternoon with the individual that introduced this legislation, and that is City Council Member at Large, Derek Green. Mr. Green, welcome into the pastor's office for the very first time. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners. It's a pleasure. Thank you for being on The Voice uh, for this community and engaging your listeners on new ideas and policy that will impact um, people throughout um, this nation. Well, listen, we are excited to have you. Thank you for taking time to be with us. Let's get right to it. Before we get to your legislation, tell our listeners a little bit about Derek Green, because it's interesting, this legislation kind of lines right up with your background. You're a former banker. Tell us a little bit about yourself. That's correct. I started my career when I came out of the University of Virginia uh, as a small business lender uh, for then a regional bank called Meridian Bank uh, that was located, uh, I was located in North Philadelphia, actually adjacent to Joe Frazier's gym. And so that gave me um, the real opportunity to see firsthand the historical impacts of redlining and what it's done to um, black and brown communities all across the country, but specifically here in Philadelphia. Uh, that then led me to you know, stay in banking, and then I left banking to go to law school at Temple Law School. I eventually um, went to practice law in Delaware for about two years, came back to the city of Philadelphia, where I got a chance to work in uh, the city of Philadelphia's law department and as an assistant district attorney. And while in the law department, my former boss started to address the issue of predatory lending, which also ties into some of the redlining issues I talked about earlier. And working with former council member Marion Tasco, we passed one of the nation's first anti-predatory lending bills in the country, became a model for other cities. Uh, her legislative aide then decided to become a judge. I then joined her office and worked with her for a number of years. And when she decided to retire, I then uh, ran for an at-large position at city council, but always cognizant of the issue of access to credit. And so that led to this legislation 
to create the Philadelphia Public Finance Authority as a way to really help black and brown businesses get better access to credit. And we all saw what the pandemic did to so many of those businesses, and it just became even more important for this type of legislation. Well, <laughs> you know, we've talked to several members uh, of council about how that pandemic and how the pandemic has impacted black business, not just black business, but businesses of color uh, all throughout Philadelphia. Uh, and you're right. There are so many businesses uh, owned by the majority that have access to all the capital they want. But our businesses continue to struggle and try to pick the remains and get what they can get. Uh, that being said, tell us how the Philadelphia Public Financial Authority is going to help solve some of those issues. Well, it's going to help to solve some of those issues by helping businesses that you know either need to increase um, their ability for cash flow by increasing a line of credit or loan, or help those who have not been able to get those type of products by making them more bankable. Um, the goal of this new authority, and it's a municipal authority that also will have the ability to be a community development financial uh, institution to then look at ways how we provide new products like letters of credit or guarantees to businesses that have traditionally been hard to get access to credit to, who have had challenging get access and or get loans from traditional banks by making them more bankable, by improving what their collateral picture looks like. So if you're a small business owner and now you're able to get a guarantee, it makes it easier for you to get a loan or grow your line of credit with an existing financial institution. And when you think about all the challenges that so many businesses have had during the pandemic, having more cash flow, either to um, hire more employees or buy more goods or services or deal with the increase in costs, because we heard about supply chain and some of those other issues, but ultimately finding ways that these businesses can hire more people and by hiring more people, it helps to address the poverty issues we have in the city of Philadelphia like they have in so many cities around this nation. Wow, that that that, that actually sounds great because we've seen a lot of our businesses close uh, as a result of not being able to find that working capital to keep going. And think about it, uh, you know, I don't mean to focus on the pandemic, but it's here and, and it's it's relevant. Two years of a pandemic has wiped out cash flow for a lot uh -huh. of businesses. Uh, and they've not been able to find those dollars. Uh, so this legislation that you have proposed that has been accepted uh, is going to help cure some of those issues, and we're excited about that. Tell me a little bit about timeline, uh, because I can imagine I've got a lot of small business owners listening right now that are like, listen, I want to learn more about this. I want to get engaged uh, because this can help me. Talk about timeline now that this has been passed by the council. Well, it became law uh, Thursday, and so now the next step is that we have two boards that have to be appointed. One board is appointed by the mayor, and there are certain qualifications that you meet to meet, having background in economic development, having an understanding and sensitivity of racial and housing and equity issues, and there's some other categories to be a member of the corporate board, which is appointed by the mayor then that board will appoint a policy board, which is a separate board that will also have to have certain qualifications to get on that board. And it's the policy board that will make the decisions regarding letters of credit or 
guarantees or other similar financial products. The timing of this was done because the mayor will provide the budget address in city council on March 31st, and then we'll go through our budget process where we have to pass a new budget by July 1. We're looking to get dollars out of the budget process to help support the initial operations of this new entity. And then later, we will look to um, probably issue some type of debt for the capitalization of this new entity. So our hope is that throughout the course of this year, we'll be able to get those steps accomplished so as we go into the new calendar year, um, we can really start operations. I was looking at some statistics for Philadelphia business ownership, uh, and one of the things that struck me was that 6% uh, of businesses in Philadelphia are owned by blacks, uh, where the population is at 44%. Uh, and then I looked at uh, the number of Latino-owned businesses. It's just as bad. This Philadelphia Public Financial Authority, will it also be able to help catapult entrepreneurs into business ownership? That's exactly what we're talking about, finding ways so that if you're an individual that has been a, let's say, a barber or you provide some other service, you may be very proficient at that service, but going to a business that provides that service is a different dynamic altogether. So you may not have a lot of resources that are in a bank account or on a balance sheet that when you go to a bank, you can say, hey, you can use this as collateral uh, for a bank loan. But by having this type of authority, it gives a guarantee to help augment what you may have to make you more bankable with either a community development financial institution or a traditional bank. And so by doing that, it's our goal and hope that these new businesses or existing businesses will be able to hire more people that will help to reduce our poverty rate so we have more than a 6% or 4% of black owners or Latin owners of the businesses with employees. But also, this will also address not only our poverty, but the public safety issues we're having in our city. Uh, Philadelphia, unfortunately, had 562 homicides last year. The year before that, 499. And so when you look at that 499-562 number, that directly ties to our 25% poverty rate, which to me ties to those other two numbers that you talked about, the 6 and 4% of businesses with employees, which shows that we are not growing small businesses at the rate we should. And the best creator of a, of a job is a small business, which is also the best way to address public safety in our cities. This one may be a little bit off topic, uh, and I, I don't think it is, but I'm going to come around the corner to the church, okay? I'm a small business owner. I own this radio station. I own others across the country. But um, my most important job is I'm a pastor. And one of the things that I've found in talking with other pastors is that it's very hard for churches to access capital. Mm -hmm. Very difficult for churches to access capital. Uh, will this new Philadelphia Public Financial Authority be able to help churches and nonprofits uh, to be able to continue their good works? Is there an arm there for that? Absolutely. Although we focused a lot on small businesses because of the impact it has on poverty and public safety, 
but the Philadelphia Public Finance Authority is really for hard-to-lend-to entities, which are, yes, black and brown businesses, but also religious institutions, um, cooperatives, other entities that are hard to lend to because when you go to a traditional bank, they don't have the organization or the ownership or the structure like a majority business does. So the financial authority is not only to help grow black and brown businesses, but also to help um, non-traditional hard to lend to entities like cooperatives and also absolutely like religious institutions. Outstanding. This is great news. Now, you uh, and the members of the council, as you just said, are dealing with a not just a, pan, a health pandemic, but a pandemic of violence in our uh, city. Uh, there were just two shootings uh, in the community of Frankfurt just this week. Uh, and unfortunately, it, it, it is not unusual for there to be shootings here. Uh, you mentioned something in one of your previous answers that, you know, all of this stuff is tied together. Uh, if we can raise folk out of poverty, if we can get folk jobs, uh, if we can put dollars back into the community, then a lot of these systemic challenges that we're dealing with, uh, of violence, drugs, gangs, a lot of that can be alleviated. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, unfortunately, too often uh, these conversations are talked in silos. So if you're a member of uh, a legislative body at the local, state, or federal level, if you tend to focus on certain issues, you tend to be, okay, well, she or he are the legislator for small business issues. And so earlier we talked about my background, having been a small business lender, been an entrepreneur, as an attorney, I've represented small businesses. But I also focus on other areas like education um, and the connection between education and this type of need because if those businesses are able to grow through this authority, their employees may be hired, and now they have more resources to put into their homes to improve their home or maybe buy a home, and our education dollars come from real estate taxes. Uh, and I have a strong you know, perspective of education, having a son on the autism spectrum and also a mother that taught in the school district uh, 31 years in the city of Philadelphia. And when I was in law school, I had a chance to teach part-time in the school district. So although I focus on one aspect with this legislation, very heavily committed in education and doing a lot of work in that space. So we've got to get beyond the silos of this is the education council person or this is a small business state representative when all these issues are intertwined and interconnected and we need to act as such. Council member at large, Derek Green, I want to thank you for coming into the pastor's office this afternoon, and, and I want to congratulate you on this great victory. Uh, so many times we, we, we hear about quagmires in, in government. This is an actual success, and it should be celebrated. Uh, and so as you continue your journey to see this to fruition uh, and actually uh, in operation in the city of Philadelphia, we hope we can call on you to come back and give us more information. Uh, but again, we say thank you and congratulations sir. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come to the pastor's office, and I would be remiss if I did not give a uh, religious shout-out to my pastor, the Reverend Dr. Derek Brennan. 
uh, the Canaan Baptist Church in Germantown, the city of Philadelphia, what we affectionately call the gem of Germantown. All right, all right. Well, Pastor, you got a great parishioner here. And uh, again, we thank you for your time, and we'll be praying for you as you continue to make a difference in the lives of all Philadelphians. God bless you, my friend. Thank you. Same to you. Yeah.